Welcome to Three Thoughts On. Today we continue the series dedicated to resilience. If you recall, the first episode in this series was with Charlie Engel, the ultramarathoner who ran across the Sahara Desert. Today, we have another impressive individual, Joe DeSena. Joe is the founder and CEO of Spartan, the world's leading endurance sports brand. Growing up in working-class Queens, DeSena demonstrated an entrepreneurial spirit since his preteens. He built a multi-million dollar pool cleaning business before moving to Wall Street, where he started his own trading firm. In 2001, DeSena fled Wall Street and went to a farm in rural Vermont. It was during this time that he discovered his passion for adventure races and endurance events, and Spartan Race was born. DeSena has built Spartan into a global fitness and wellness brand with a 10 million-plus community of athletes across the globe. Under his leadership, Spartan's portfolio of brands has grown to include Spartan Trail, Deca, La Ruta, Tough Mudder, and Highlander. For almost a year now, I've been very lucky to share office space with Joe and his team. And I can tell you, it is impressive to watch them work, to watch them inspire themselves, and to continue their mission of getting more and more people off the couch and living a lifestyle of movement and health. I hope you enjoy our conversation, but most importantly, I hope that you feel inspired by Joe's words and that you go and find out some of the things that you can do with your body when you choose to eat better and move more. And now, Joe DeSena. Welcome to Three Thoughts On. Today, I'm delighted to have Joe DeSena. Joe, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I got some healthy popcorn my friends in the office just gave me. I'm like, I'm, I'm at a, a move. I'm being entertained by you here today. This is awesome. This is fantastic. So I know you're a busy man, so I'm grateful that you're making the time for me. And you are the second episode of my series about resilience. The first guest was your friend, our common friend, Charlie Engel. And I couldn't think of anybody better to follow up that you being the CEO and founder of Spartan Race. So can you give us three minutes on who you are and how you came about the Spartan concept? I'm nobody. And I, um, I was born in Queens, New York. If you saw the movie Goodfellas, I grew up in ground zero for that movie. So it was, it was all organized crime and small business owners and just people that got it done. Very Italian, very Jewish neighborhood. My mom looking for a different way to live, a healthier way to live, because it was a crazy town. If, again, if you saw that movie, she found a yogi in a health food store, probably the only health food store on the entire East Coast in the 70s. The yogi convinced her to become a vegan, to start meditating, to start doing yoga. She expanded those thoughts over the years into cold showers, long distance running, all kinds of crazy stuff. Her guru started a race in Queens, New York that still exists today called the Transcendence Run. The 3,000-mile run around a one-mile loop. So you run around in circles 3,000 times. It takes 50 to 60 days. You do about 50 miles a day. I saw that as a young kid. I saw my mother fast 
no food and meditate for 30 days straight. And I thought it was completely crazy. I wanted, no, I wanted nothing to do with all this. I wanted to make money. <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted a Cadillac. I liked, I liked the idea of being, you know, in organized crime. But fast forward in my life, through happenstance, I ended up going to college and I found myself on Wall Street working on a trading desk. We were making a lot of money at the time. And I found myself just not feeling great. My mom had died by then. She had cancer. She died. And um, all of a sudden, I was open-minded to all these things she tried to preach, you know, 20 years before. I started doing yoga. I started running. I started taking care of myself. I started eating raw fruits and vegetables. And then... I stumbled upon this thing called adventure racing, which ultimately led to, to starting Spartan and this uh, amazing journey we've been on. Thank you for sharing. That's fantastic. So let's jump right in into the topic. As you know, this podcast is called Three Thoughts On, and this is today, Three Thoughts On Resilience from Your Point of View. And when we discussed you being my guest here today, you said, oh, I can do this. I have three thoughts right away, top of my head. And you mentioned uh, legacy hardware, quarterly numbers, and happiness. So let's go from top to bottom on those. What, what are you thinking? Yeah, so <clears throat> a lot of people don't realize it. And I guess I knew this subconsciously because I, I ran a business from a very young age. And it was very hard to find employees that worked at the level I needed to work at in order to succeed in business. And I, I started to take on this, this thought that people are generally lazy. And when I said that to myself and I said that to others, it sounded insulting. People don't want to hear that. But I believed it. And I've been trying to rec reconcile this thought for a long time. Well, it turns out I have a podcast. And I've had the opportunity to interview a lot of people and learn a lot in the process. And I learned... Actually, we are lazy, all of us, me, you, and it's by design that we're lazy. It keeps us alive. It protected us throughout thousands of years from strolling out into a hot desert and shriveling up and dying or rolling out into the cold and freezing and dying or falling off a cliff or you name it, anything that's extremely uncomfortable, our brains protect us from and tell us not to do it. It expends too much energy. It's too dangerous. And that made a lot of sense for the last million years on the planet. It makes less sense today where we are completely coddled. We're in our living room. It's climate controlled. The shower is hot. The Netflix is there. The popcorn gets handed to you. It just got handed to me. And so here we have this legacy hardware and software looking to protect us, looking to keep us safe and not allowing us to do the hard thing. But we don't have to do any hard things. It's the wrong hardware, the wrong software for the times we live in. So I was right. My instinct was right. And it's not, it's not a bad thing to talk about. It's not a bad thing to, you know, to say to each other, like, we are late. And if you don't believe me, by the way, next time you wake up in the morning, and you plan on working out, watch what your subconscious does. 
it asks you, you don't even know it's happening. happening. It's tricking you into making coffee, into checking the news, looking at your emails, anything but doing the workout, avoiding the danger, expending the energy, right? Don't do that. We have to make coffee. We have to check our email. We have to go to the bathroom. Did we brush our teeth? Anything. I, by the way, I know all this and it happens to me. I turn the cold shower on and I find myself going to do something else. I'm like, well, how did that happen? Right? So, so that's my thought. Like the number one thing we have to do if we want to be more resilient, more badass, is recognize how we're built. Understand that it's okay. Don't view yourself as, you know, a wimp. We all have the problem. The trick I've learned after doing this for 40 plus years, most of it, I I didn't even know what I was doing. The trick is to make the pain and the danger worse if you don't do the hard thing. If I don't do the workout, I'm miserable all day. If I don't take the shower, I don't feel as good, right? If I don't like, so you have to make not doing it worse on yourself. And eventually your brain starts to change. Oh, this is fantastic. This goes right along with my first two podcasts were about the evolution uh, from an evolutionary biology perspective of the mind and the brain, right? And it goes right along with all that, uh, the fact that it took about 3 million years from the time that our ancestors began consuming animal protein to to 250,000 years ago, the Homo sapiens, 15,000, the agricultural evolution, and then everything changed so dramatically that we are so ill-prepared. And in just the last 50 years, like you say, you know, we, we are overfed and under-exercised. That's what my doctor tells me every day. We're overfed and under-exercised. In reality, we only need about a, one good meal a day, and we need to move a lot more. But our livelihood takes us to the opposite side. So I'm going to throw something at you, and I want you to comment on it and see if it resonates. Keep me in check here. There's a term that I just got acquainted to very recently, uh, hormesis. It's H-O-R-M-E-S-I-S. It's a term that came from the 40s and 50s, biologists working with doctors, where they figured out that if you take toxic substances and you put them into the, the, the body, not just not humans, but like plants and animals, and of course, humans as well, knowing that at a certain amount, it can kill the animal or the plant or the human. But if you actually microdose it, if you will, right, if you put it in very small amounts, it actually will make the, the entity under test, if you will, more resilient. So you fast forward to today and now everybody's talking about hormesis, but from the point of view of controlled pain, control discomfort, that the idea that if you stress yourself out, everybody's afraid of stress, but this is taking it from a completely different angle. If you stress yourself on purpose for a fixed amount of time and then you go back into rest, you become more resilient. Your immune system goes up. You know, that's the whole purpose of working out. You're stressing your muscles. They ache. You get stronger. They get repaired. Is this along the lines of what we're talking about here That from your experience? 100%. Um, the term I've been using for decades is 
we need to manufacture adversity in our lives. Now, you know, if it was 300 years ago, 200 years ago, I would say we don't need to manufacture any adversity. We are, we are living in horse poop. We are dying of all kinds of diseases. There are locust storms that attack us. Um, we didn't, we needed more couches and more penicillin. Um, but today we definitely need those micro doses of stress and, and then we need the strength and intelligence to make sure, um, we deal with it and we recover from those micro doses and we build something then we call obstacle immunity, um, or resilience, uh, the ability to persist, right? Grit. You choose, you choose the term, but, um, you know, if you're out there listening to this and again, you're questioning, cause I have a lot of friends, we've got 10 million people do a race. So I talk to a lot of people. They just don't buy into it. Their brains won't allow them to accept what you and I are talking about. And what I would say is think about a plant that grows up in a greenhouse and the weather is perfect and there's no wind just the right amount of fertilizer, just the right amount of hydration, just the right amount of sun versus a plant that grows up on the side of a mountain that grows roots around a rock that's hanging on for life in the wind every day, might get no water, might get no light. Like, which plant do you want to be? <laughs> because, because only one is going to survive the Armageddon, you know? Only one's going to survive tough times. And well, why do we need to do that? Because we all face tough times. People around us die. Businesses go out of business. People get divorced. People get cancer. Like shit happens. And so why wouldn't you want to be the plant that can deal with it? Mm -hmm. You want to be the plant that adapts, right? And that's, I, I was mentioning this in another podcast interview I had the opportunity to take my kids to to Oxford a couple of years back, and we were walking around what today is a museum, but at the time was the hall where Darwin gave his lecture of the you know the origin of the species. And I was talking to one of the professors you know that work there today, and and he was telling me that there's a lot of things that are attributed to Darwin that he never really said. Like he the the, the term survival of the fittest wasn't his; it was somebody else, and. Uh, But in essence, what he was talking about is the survival of those who adapt to the environment around them, right? That adaptability is what builds that resilience. So it's what you're talking about. I want to be the plant that adapts and survives, right? So it matters. It matters what we do during those moments when our brain wants to keep us in homeostasis, meaning the energy is all balanced. I'm not spending any energy I don't need to spend. Right. I got everything under control. The liver's got energy. The brain's got this going on. You know, glucose levels are good. Everything is good. Don't move. <laughs> right. And it's during those moments of lucidity where you say, I need to move. That's when you have to get up. That's what, because if you don't, you're going to walk around and then you're not going to do it. So, so that's your point about the legacy hardware, right? You know, we have legacy. I like to say we have legacy hardware, software, and wetware, firmware, you know, all inside the brain, trying to keep us safe, trying to keep us alive, trying to keep us balanced. Your next thought is a uh, thought about quarterly numbers. 
Tell me more about that. Yeah, look, I think I'm, I'm a capitalist. I like the idea of making money. I love that we all get to work and um, get paid and find purpose, hopefully, in the work. But there's an unintended negative consequence to that, to the system. And that is, you know, we've got to make our numbers every quarter in our household, in our businesses or whatever. And we might find ourselves making compromises to achieve those numbers and doing, doing things that we shouldn't do. I had to give a speech recently in Washington, D.C. for Norwich University. It's the oldest private military college in the U.S. And I, I summed it up with a couple of sentences. I said, listen, you're the oldest private military college in the U.S., you can't make compromises. You make tiny little compromises and you do it over decades. And then you wake up and you're like, how the hell did I get here? This isn't the university we started. My, my favorite analogy is you and I are sitting in the cockpit of a spaceship and by accident, your elbow hits a tiny little dial and it turns it one millimeter to the right. No big deal, except you and I end up on the wrong planet. Right. So when you extrapolate out what happens when we make these little compromises because we want to hit our quarterly numbers, because we want to make sure we get enough likes and shares on the Internet, whatever the thing is that we're chasing, um, it's got unintended negative consequences. We start if we're a food company, we start trading one ingredient for a less expensive one. Turns out to be less healthy. We, we look around and we see all these fast food restaurants because those are easier to operate. And consumers are happy because they just get in and out when they, when, they, when they do that, right? So like, I found it in my own house, by the way. Every single day, my four kids had to do 30 minutes of Mandarin every single day. You know how much work that is to yell at the kids and get them all switched on and do the man like. It's easier not to do it, right? And before you know it, you wake up and they no longer speak Mandarin. So anyway, you guys, you get, you get the point if you're listening. It's really, there's a great saying, uh, Charlie Chaplin, I think, had it way back when. Here are my principles. If you don't like those, I have others. And you don't want to be a person. You don't want to have a, be a person that, right? like, put your stake in the ground and hold firm even when the whole world is against you, even when it means your stock's going to drop, you're not going to hit your quarterly numbers. If you know it's the right thing to feed people healthy, to, to, to do the work every night with the Mandarin, to whatever, you just got to do it. You got to do it no matter how hard it is. Don't make those compromises. Well, let me, let me, I like that. Let me, let me see if I can put a little bit of a different spin on it because I'm with you. I'm, I'm also a capitalist. I haven't seen a better system invented yet, but I do have my issues the way that we do it. You know, we have th this concept of infinite growth. Every quarter we have to grow. Okay. Till when? <laughs> Till we take over the entire competition? And then what? We're going to start building companies in Mars? Is that, is that the plan? <laughs> Until you go backwards. 
right? It's like, what else behaves that way? Infinite growth. Yeah. A virus, right? Cancer. Right. You know, it, you know, so we, we have to be careful, you know, with, with this concept of, you know, quarter to quarter gains. But if I zoom in into the family unit or, you know, if you're an individual like me, you live alone, it's not necessarily about the compromise is, it's not coming back on track. Right. You know, cause sometimes you, you make a compromise, but for whatever reason, you know, but the idea is, is you have to come back to the path that you're trying to walk on. Right. Cause otherwise then you stay off course. Cause what happens, I see a lot is people beat themselves up when they fall off the wagon, you know, so you're in a workout routine, you know, you're doing this, you're doing that, you know, you're trying to eat healthy, you go to a restaurant and then you ate something you're not supposed to eat and you didn't even know about it. Cause these days you don't even know. You go to a restaurant, you don't even know what they're using as far as food, right? And like you said, restaurants make compromise, you know. They put more salt to give more flavor, you know. They put more sugar, you know. Things you buy in the supermarket. Everybody's making all these compromises to make the numbers. And if you pay attention to every single little one thing, you're not going to live, right? So, but is, is, this, is this idea of that, that tacking of, of, a, of a sale uh, saleable? You got to, you know, set the sale to the right. And then set the sail to the left and then set the sail to the right. And you keep doing that. And the resultant is straight, right? But for little moments, you're going a little bit off course, but then you come back around and then you stay around. So that's, um, at least it seems to me like it's, it, it's the only graceful way to not, to stay on course, but not beat yourself down when you feel like you may be temporarily off course. Would would you agree with that, or you want to add something to that? Yeah, listen. I think even myself, right? You might cheat on your food choices, um, and it is easy then to just throw your arms up and all of a sudden go down the wrong path for a long period of time. And you don't have to do that. The past is the past. You can't get back what happened two minutes ago. Your next meal, get back on track. Right. I think that's what we're saying when, when you when you say that you didn't work out today. That's OK. We're going to work out tomorrow. Now, I'm going to message to myself and everybody around the world that we should be consistent and disciplined and do it every day and we'll feel better. But we are human. We do make mistakes. We do tack to the left like the sailboat. We got to come back to the right. Um, there's a great saying that you'll like. Ed Vister is one of the you know, greatest American mountain climber. He said, getting to the top of the mountain is optional. Getting down is mandatory. And so let's not forget that, right? Like we're going to make mistakes. The world is not perfect. But let's remember, let's remember that all this pressure put on us in this capitalistic system, the best, the best system we have may, may not be the best system, best one we've come up with. Um, is going to push us to do things that aren't right and sometimes aren't in our long-term best interest. Recognize it and get back on track. Absolutely. I like that a lot. So that's the second one. Third thought, you have some thoughts on happiness and how it ropes around with everything we've been talking about. Yeah, so um, this is a great one. We want to be happy and we will become happy if we just have more followers on Instagram. We will be happy 
if we just had a nicer house or a nicer car. I remember, I remember my family talking once about if they just had a nicer house. And I said, that, like, that's ridiculous. If the house is going to make you happy, if, if, I, if I only had that girlfriend or that boyfriend, if my business was only doing that, I'd be happy. The problem with that, imagine if our life was a horizontal line on a whiteboard. And what I just described is we want to go above that line and get the nicer house, the nicer car, the nicer girl, the nicer boy, whatever it is. We want to move up. Well, that never ends. That's infinite growth, right? Like we just want to keep chasing the next thing. You never get there. You're always disappointed. And by the way, when you do get that thing, it's not as good as you think it is. What I found in my life is I was going in the wrong direction. Actually, we got to go down on the whiteboard below the line. We got to take things away from our life. See what it's like to not have a car, to not be with that girl or that guy, to not have that house, sleep outside. And when you do that, and then you get back to just where you were, you are so friggin' happy. You know, I got a saying, those that have everything appreciate nothing. Those that have nothing appreciate everything. And I've certainly been there. I've done these crazy races. I've slept in the rain. I've been cold, tired, hungry. I've had dysentery and giardia. I've lost 32 pounds over seven days. I lived in 30 below temperatures and waist deep snow with my eyelashes frozen shut, nearly dead. And let me tell you, well, here's a better example. My kids, I took them outside of Vancouver in Squamish on the way to Whistler on a hike with some friends of mine, my friend Mo, an accountant, and his kids. And we got stranded. It was like a movie scene. We got stranded up in a snowstorm. The kids were freezing. They were crying. We didn't know if we were going to have to eat one of the kids. <laughs> it was like a whole, it was literally like, you know, a book, a movie. When we got back down the next day, we got in the car, the kids were starving. And they wanted, but the only choice was junk food. And I said, no, we're going to wait till we get to Vancouver. It's an hour. And they begged and they begged and they begged. And I had to get gas anyway. So I, I went into Wendy's against my own policy. And I said, you can all get one small French fry each. And they got it. My oldest son tripped after he got the French. He was so excited. He tripped and all the French fries fell on the floor. The kids started eating them off the floor. If this was two, if this was two days ago, two days prior, they would not have touched it. If somebody touched their French fry, they would have complained. I can't believe it. My brother touched the French fry. I'm not eating them. They were on the, they could have been covered in bugs. Didn't matter. Those that have nothing appreciate everything. Yeah, let me share two thoughts uh, along those lines and see, and see if you, if you re these resonate with you. So the, the concept of happiness, I find this actually quite interesting because I'm very fascinated with this new concept of evolutionary biology and evolutionary anthropology. And I have all these books that I'm reading at any given point in time. And in one of them, the author says, the thing about happiness is that it's not a requirement for evolution. And I stopped for a moment to think about that. And then he proceeds to elaborate on that. And basically, in summary, is says, well, we humans thrive towards something that, again, 
our legacy hardware, software, firmware, wetware, whatever you want to call it, is not part of the program to keep us alive. Happiness has never been part of the equation of survival of the adaptable or survival of the fittest, however you want to call it. It's just something we do. It feels good to be happy. It's it's beautiful. You know, we all want to be happy, but it's not in line with the equation of what do I have to do to be alive tomorrow, right? And I think that it's a very sobering statement to listen to because it's not that I'm not, I'm going to give up on happiness. No, not at all. But we should put it in the place it deserves to be, which is something you pursue, something you you thrive towards, right? And then you are conscious that at times you may not attain, but then you get up the next day and you make it part of your quest. You make it part of your growth. You make it part of your path. I would do one better. I think I think I I got one better, which is, you know, the ancient samurai, when they went to bed at night, they would close their eyes and they would burn all their possessions, their family, everything in their mind. When they woke up in the morning and they re-encountered their possessions and their family, they were incredibly happy. And so I don't know. I, I would say I would say when people say to me, Are you happy? Are we winning today? I think I'm alive. I'm alive. Like, so I'm automatically happy because I'm alive. And if that's your bar, if you set the bar there, like you could pursue those other things. Like you're talking about the pursuit of happiness, but like I already checked the biggest box there is. I woke up. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I agree. But I think, I think the challenge, the challenge, you know, there's, there's a great book called Dopamine Nation. I highly recommend it, Dr. Ann Lemke. She's a professor at Stanford. And she talks, again, we'll, we keep going back to that first thought of the legacy. You know, in the book, she talks about we are wired for the quest through the dopamine reward circuits in our, you know, the neurological pathways, right? And what that does is it, it gets us to a point where the thrive or the dopamine spike, that you know, the high that we get, it's a function of the quest, not the attaining of what you're seeking, right? So it seems like we're, and again, this worked really well 250,000 years ago when you were walking, looking for a tree of dates or some fruit, and then you find it, and then you eat it, and then you see that you're thriving and you're, you're feeling amazing, and then you realize there's no more. So I got to get up and walk however many miles until I find the next one, right? So dopamine has a very specific purpose is to keep you in that quest because if you don't go to that quest, you sit there, there are no more trees, right? So you got to go. But back to your point in the beginning, I can order on Amazon Prime and the dates will show up and they'll be gigantic dates, abnormally overgrown dates, that I can keep eating until the cows come home. That's why, that's why what we should all do is get an address a mile from your house where all your Amazon packages go and you have to walk the mile to go get them. <laughs> you should park your car a mile from the grocery store so you have to walk to go get it, right? It sounds silly, but you've got to have that pursuit to your point 
um, to make it interesting. My boys wrestle. My, we have two boys, two girls. The boys wrestle. And we spend three hours a day, every day wrestling, 21 hours a week. The music's pl- playing in there. The incredible music the coach plays. They're sweating. They lose six or seven pounds. The wrestling match is only five minutes once every month. All that training, like that's the fun. That's where it's all happening. The great music, like we're grinding, they're working. It's not even the competition. You know, it's it's not the date tree. It's not actually getting the dates. It's the journey. It's the journey. Well, Joe, we we've uh, getting close to the to our ending time here. What do you want to when it when it comes to resilience? We talk about three different things here. How do you want to wrap this up for the audience? How do you want to what do you want to tell folks when it you know comes to being more resilient, being more out there, growing and evolving? Well, number one, accept that you're wired to do less than you can. We all are. Um, number two, uh, you got to practice hard. You got to manufacture some adversity in your life and practice it the same way you practice the piano or math or cooking. Um, you're not going to get good at doing hard if you don't practice it. Um, and number three, make sure you have uh, a purpose in life. Um, that purpose can change, but if you have a solid purpose, for me, it's changing a hundred million lives. I, I threw out a crazy number when I change a hundred million lives. And every time the going gets tough, which is about all day, every day running this business, um, I can lean back on that purpose. I can, um, rest assured that I did hard today or yesterday, whatever it is. So I practiced it. Um, and I'm more likely to just get to my goals. I, and I, and I, and appreciate, appreciate, like we said, appreciate that you're alive and you get to do this. We get to do this. We don't have to do it. I like that. We get to do this. We get to live this life. We get to experience another day every day. Joe DeSena. Thank you very much for making time. I'm very grateful. Then we'll talk soon. You are amazing. <laughs>